This is Epicenter, episode 297 with guest Amin Soleimani. This episode of Epicenter is brought to you by Microsoft Azure. Do you have an idea for a blockchain app but are worried about the time and cost it will take to develop? The new Azure Blockchain Dev Kit is a free download that brings together the tools you need to get your first app running in less than 30 minutes. Learn more at aka.ms slash epicenter. And by Trello Fits. Don't leave your project's security audit to just any firm. Trust a team with decades of experience at the forefront of blockchain security research. Go to trailofbits.com to learn more. Hi, welcome to Epicenter. My name is Sebastian Couture. And I am Friederike Ernst. Today we're speaking with Amin Soleimani. Amin is quite well known in the Ethereum community. He was an early employee at Consensus and uh, then went on to found uh, Spank Chain, which is an adult uh, entertainment industry blockchain platform. And more recently, he uh, was the summoner, not to say founder, but the summoner of the Moloch DAO, which is a DAO that is aimed at funding the development of Ethereum and specifically Ethereum 2.0. So yeah, Moloch has a really interesting way that it, well, first, first of all, like summons itself, but also it has a really interesting um, mechanism for uh, signaling uh, one's intention to fund a proposal or not. And it's heavily influenced on uh, the design of the original DAO, the DAO uh, of 2016. And it's, uh, it's attracted some of the most prolific thinkers of the Ethereum ecosystems who have since become members of the Moloch DAO um, with uh, the intention of furthering the course of Ethereum 2.0. So uh, uh, we're excited to hear what uh, Amin has to say about this. Yeah, and furthering the cause of Ethereum 2.0 is something I think that we should all be uh, thinking about and, and uh, trying to further. So before we go to our interview with Amin, I want to mention again that we will be participating in DAPCON. So DAPCON is on the week of August. 21st till 23rd. 21st till 23rd. And so we'll be participating, uh, Federica, Sunny, and myself, and we'll be doing a live podcast there. And you can get tickets at dapcon.io, and we have a 20% discount code, and that discount code is epicenterdapcon2019. It will be in the show notes. And... As we usually do when we travel to events, we will be doing a drinks meetup on the 22nd. Uh, the venue has yet to be announced, but you can uh, sign up on the meetup on the Eventbrite page and uh, the venue will be announced uh, shortly and it will probably be close to the venue of uh, DAPCON. And so you can go to epicenter.rocks slash Berlin meetup. Uh, to sign up and as soon as we have the venue and time and everything um, we'll put it up there and we'll let you know so yeah come have a drink with us uh, right before the uh, right before the party that night yeah and it's it's uh, definitely worth going so DEPCON is part of the Berlin blockchain week so there's tons of other events also taking place such as uh, ETH Berlin, DAO Fest, uh, the Web3 Summit, um, the Meta Cartel uh, conference. So there's lots of things going on and I can't even begin to mention all the meetups. That, it's a uh, massive week. I think it's like the most dense blockchain week I've ever seen, or at least in Berlin. Oh uh, yeah. So basically I think 
So it's not as dense as New York Blockchain Week, but it, there is a lot of events. So you won't go without an event. Um, and it is, uh, if you want to check out the schedule, it's um, at blockchainweek.berlin. Right. Well, I'm really looking forward to it and uh, hope to see many of you guys there and hopefully uh, grab a drink with you. So with that, here's our interview with Amin Soleimani. Hi, so we're here with Amin Soleimani. He is um, the CEO of SpankChain and also the summoner of the Moloch DAO. And so today we're going to be speaking primarily about the Moloch DAO, and, uh, but also uh, his, the project that he's built with SpankChain uh, briefly and, uh, and also his time with Consensus. Hi, Amin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So yeah, let's talk about your background. How did you get involved in the blockchain space and get to where you are today? Yeah, so this, the story starts uh, as many uh, the Bitcoin and blockchain story starts with uh, ordering uh, mushrooms on the Silk Road in college uh, and doing them. They were excellent and very mind-opening. Um, after that, I built a Bitcoin arbitrage bot uh, right after I, I graduated. That was the first thing I did when I learned how to code. Um, I was making money between two exchanges, uh, made a little bit of money there, and then lost everything in Mt. Gox. Um, made way more money off of the, the price run up uh, than I was making with the arbitrage, but um, ultimately got goxed. So uh, I, I took a hiatus from crypto for about two years uh, until I discovered Ethereum. And uh, when I discovered Ethereum, I joined Consensus. Uh, and that's sort of where this uh, story begins. What did you do at Consensus? Yeah, so. At Consensus, I was their state channels expert. Um, I was the only one there who was really talking about it or thinking about it at the time. And I did some research there. I also worked on the energy project, um, which was a sort of predecessor to Grid Plus. Uh, it was a partnership with RWE. We were trying to build a, a new energy market infrastructure. Um, I also helped launch AdChain, which was the first uh, TCR token curated registry, which is basically as uh, I think Decrypt Media would put it, uh, a listicle with equity is, is the most succinct uh, description I've seen. <laughs> so you joined Consensus pretty early on. Uh, the How many uh, person were you at Consensus? Do you know? Yeah, so I, I joined in the summer of 2016, so I was about 100. Okay, and you also left a while ago. Yes, I left in the summer of 2017. And uh, after that, you started SpankChain, uh, which is an adult entertainment Ethereum business. Tell us about that. Well, I was sitting around at Consensus, and a lot of people were proposing very you know, ambitious and, and forward-thinking uh, use cases that I thought would never work. And so I thought, well, I'm, you know, wh where is this stuff going to happen first? Who actually cares uh, about decentralization, about so sovereignty, about money. And I thought, well, uh, the adult industry, not only do they tend to be on the cutting edge of innovation, but in this specific case for this specific technology where you can you know, have access to money that can't be frozen and that like, they are the ones who are uh, sort of ostracized by the existing banking system. So they are the most motivated to switch to a new financial system. Uh, and so that's what uh, motivated us to start SpankChain. And so we did an ICO. We raised uh, about six and a half million dollars in November of 2017, uh, put together a team of 
engineers and designers. We shipped the first payment channel system on Ethereum to mainnet in April of 2018. Um, we have iterated on it since then uh, with uh, Connext, um, built a, the, the Spank card, which I think now is, is going to be a metaphor for channels as a sort of like fast, instant you know, payment system that will be used again and again in the ecosystem. And then uh, launched a bunch of other things. And uh, now we, we've also just launched a Spank Pay, which is our B2B payment processor. It's sort of like a BitPay clone, but for the adult industry. So, you know, yesterday I'm on the phone with Naughty America CEO trying to pitch him on it. So these days I do a lot of sales uh, and stuff like that. So essentially you came at the adult industry from the technological side. So like there's this idea that like all technologies, you know, first start and blossom in the technology and in the other industry, like, you know, DVDs and the internet and like VR and this sort of thing. I, I believe like I've seen you speak about this, like your ambition also was to create a space where people in the adult industry could have more sovereignty, like not only with their funds, but also with uh, like, you know, removing middlemen and, and, I think you also had aspirations to stop or at least reduce um, sex trafficking. Can you tell us about like how you see that uh, playing out now that Spank Chain is, I believe, like about a year old or something like that? Yeah, um, I think we've had a healthy uh, narrowing of focus as we've uh, grown as a company. Where you know, uh, we the, the timing of when we raised our money lent itself to uh, wanting to explore a lot of things in parallel. But as we've, um, you know, gone as a company, we've, we've tried to focus on just like a couple more business use cases in order to drive our initial growth. But I think that um, we will get to the, the other types of, of more ambitious uh, use cases over time. So, for example, you know, re reducing middlemen, like the... The payment processors in the adult industry charge uh, about 10% um, on transactions. Normally, that's around 3%. Um, so just being able to offer a payment processor that we charge 0.5%, like that's, you know, saves 10% on every transaction for um, businesses in the space. And there's no chargebacks, which are rampant in the adult industry. And so for them, like they actually need this uh, new payment system and to accept crypto and then further a lot of the payout options so like for spank.live for our uh, live campsite we've been doing crypto payouts since day one um, but a lot of these uh, sites have issues with their you know bankers to be able to pay out their performers um, and so the bank will get shut down that they use or, or they'll get have their accounts closed and that just you know interrupts the the pay, payment schedule for any of the models that they're getting paid, which is pretty important for them because you know sometimes they're even living like paycheck to paycheck, right? And that can be really disruptive. And so we're also talking to other sites, platforms to help manage them pay out their models too through crypto if they would like. As for the sex trafficking stuff, um, I, I think that's mostly going to be. Like if there's a solution to that type of problem, it'll be in like decentralized reputation systems. Um, I'm thinking carefully about how to roll those out because they also happen to be 
like if they are effective against sex traffickers, they would also be effective against law enforcement um, for the same reasons, uh, because they both try to abduct you while you're doing your job. So you mentioned uh, the campsite. I believe that's like your primary product, uh, at least for the moment. I mean, in doing research for this episode, I like went on the site and had a look at it. Like it's very nicely designed and everything. And like it looks really cool. But there seems to be like very little activity there. At most, I think I saw like two performers um, at a time. It's mostly it seems mostly empty. You know, how do you see that product? Do you think it's successful or do you think, you know, there are other things that are um, other forces at play here that are preventing growth? Yeah, so I don't consider it successful today uh, with only a few performers. I'm, we're not really helping that many people. Uh, right. But the, the growth trajectory sort of mapped very closely onto the crypto prices, um, where because for the last year up until really last week, um, we were offering only crypto payments as an option. We were excluding the other 99% of people or more who don't have crypto. Um, and so it also made it so that any sort of marketing we did uh, was less worth it to do than if we could convert the other 99% of people. So we have been holding back on marketing. But as of last week, we've both uh, started to accept fiat payments through uh, one of these you know, high-risk adult payment processors that charges us 10%, as well as opening the platform up to international models. And so I think we are going to see a lot more growth um, in the next couple months. Um, and we're also starting to pay for marketing directly. How is this model now better in than other adult entertainment sites, seeing that you also have to um, have that 10% cut? Yeah, um, there's a couple things that we can still do to be more competitive. I think at the beginning, I was a little bit naive and I was like, okay, we have crypto payments. This is going to be a silver bullet and it'll solve all our problems. <laughs> um, and, you know, user adoption is right around the corner uh, for, for crypto. Like these, you know, th these things ended up taking longer uh, than we would have expected. And so as far as the um, advantages, there's a couple things. So one is Like I said, we always we have crypto payouts, so you can always get your money when you want it. You're not like on a two-week schedule for the money that you're getting, and so uh, that that's actually new um, for basically all models, um, and and they value that a lot. Um, at the same time, uh, we also have ways that we're exploring of um, subsidizing uh, our our users, and so with our Spank token. And so we're looking at ways of uh, distributing it for like, um, you know, through like stream mining. So if you're a performer and you are, you know, you make up 25% of the tips for a given hour, we want to give you a 25% chance at winning some, like for example, a thousand bonus bank. Um, and you can do this and, and spread the, uh, the, the Spank Uh, token itself more broadly because it is a utility token um, because it's not a security one of the competitive edges is that you get a lot more incentive alignment and i think that it's really powerful when you have a platform where the creators on that platform uh, have a stake in the success of the platform and 
I, th I think that'll be pretty competitive too. Um, but ultimately, it'll uh, it'll compete on merit, right? Uh, we will have to do many of the things that other campsites do in terms of setting up affiliate programs, and we we try to avoid doing that. But I think that um, if you if you're trying to enter a new business where you know less than the other people, uh, it would be wise to at least start out by doing what most of them do. This episode of Epicenter is brought to you by Microsoft and the Azure Blockchain Workbench. Getting your blockchain from the whiteboard to production can be a big undertaking. And something as simple as connecting your blockchain to IoT devices or existing ERP systems is a project in itself. Well, the folks at Microsoft had you covered. You already know about the Azure Blockchain Workbench and how easy it makes bootstrapping your blockchain network pre-configured with all the cloud services you need for your enterprise app. Their new development kit is the IFTTT for blockchains. Suppose you want to collect data from someone in a remote location via SMS and have that data packaged in a transaction for your Hyperledger Fabric blockchain. The development kit allows you to build this integration in just a few steps in a simple drag and drop interface. Here's another great example. Perhaps you're an institution working with Ethereum and rely on CSV files sent by email. One click in the dev kit and you can parse these files and have the data embedded in transactions. Whatever you're working with, the dev kit can read, transform, and act on the data. To learn more and to build your first application in less than 30 minutes, visit aka.ms epicenter. And be sure to follow them on Twitter at MSFT Blockchain. We'd like to thank Microsoft and Azure for their support of Epicenter. A couple of months ago, you started the Moloch DAO, which I am sure takes up a lot of your time. So how does the Spankchain community feel about this? Uh, Moloch doesn't actually take up that much of my time. Uh, people, people ask me that because they're like, with Vitalik and Joe in, like, how do you, you know, how are you going to juggle this? And I'm like, so, uh, and, and rolling this back just a second, right? Um, Moloch took a bunch of time when I was launching it. Moloch took time when, you know, we were writing the code and testing it and, and deploying it and really organizing the first, um, cohort of, of, you know, co-founders to, to each, you know, there's 22 people. We each put in a hundred ether, um, and, and the people came from all you know avenues of the ethereum community uh, came from maker gnosis uh, consensus you know some are devs some are investors uh, some are evangelists um you know connects team is in james young cassandra who used to run the ecf helped me start it um there's there's a bunch of us that that really wa wanted to see this through and and you know shep shepherding that along in the very beginning explaining like how it worked and um getting the first couple of proposals out uh, that, that took a bit of time. Um, but then, um, now that, uh, Joe and Vitalik and consensus and the F also joined for a thousand ether, um, it takes a lot less time because, uh, the pitch is a lot more straightforward. It's, Hey, look, these guys are in, this is clearly a cool thing. You should also join, um, where it would have taken more of my time had they not joined to be able to accomplish the same types of things. Um, I can leverage, you know, their money. Uh, essentially, to to do it, so I think that Moloch is actually helpful for Spankchain um, because it shows the you know not only the that we can ship something that you know ha can really coordinate a lot of financial value, but also that we are part of this community uh, that is. Uh, I don't want to say Ethereum leadership, 
um, you know, some of the most respected people in the Ethereum community are the ones who are in it. And that has earned us some recognition from people in the adult industry who are now more willing to work with us because they recognize uh, our status in that community. Now, that's super interesting that it works uh, that way around as well. Um, so maybe let's back up here a second. So um, what is the Moloch DAO and uh, what, what made you and your co-founders actually launch it? Yeah, so the Moloch DAO is a grants-making organization. Um, it is aimed at trying to solve uh, at least some of the tragedy of the commons around funding public goods in Ethereum. Uh, so it is a smart contract. Uh, it is a way for people to, to deposit their Ether, and then they get votes proportional to how much Ether they brought in. Um, you have to get voted in by the existing members, but once you're in, you can then also vote on uh, other proposals, which can be either other new members or grants. Um, and if at any point you don't like how the grant funding is going or who is being admitted, how the votes are going, you can take whatever ether you have left in the guild bank and rage quit, which means you just exit with your proportional share of all your remaining money. So there's a couple of um, grant programs actually around, and they were around at the time that uh, that the Moloch DAO was launched. So things like uh, the Ethereum Community Fund um, or the Ethereum Foundation grant uh, program. Um, how do you see those, and why did you st still see the need for the Moloch DAO? So Moloch is faster. Uh, the voting period is seven days. So if you submit a proposal, you'll get your response within seven days. Uh, that might not be enough time for everybody to do a great amount of due diligence, but it does put this sort of uh, baseline floor on uh, you know, the, the responsiveness of, of that grant-making organization, which I think is really powerful because especially for sort of um, unexpected needs um, or you know, the uh, grants that might have otherwise taken a long time to, to do through um, either consensus or the EF, um, It, it, it can be really helpful, right? Ultimately, you know, we we have the sort of Ethereum meta organization, right? And like, there's a feedback loop, and the feedback loop is how fast can we identify a need, uh, find the person to do it, and secure funding for them to do it. And we, from talking to Ethereum 2.0 people for you know a, a, about a test runner that would run uh, amongst all of the different clients and and give them a way to standardize. Uh, their tests so that they can make sure that they're all synchronized properly. And we, you know, I tweeted about it. We found the guy uh, and then we submitted the proposal in three days. And so we had our answer in, in 10 days. And I think that was like the fastest feedback cycle I'd ever seen for a grants organization in my entire life. So that was pretty cool. Uh, the EF obviously has about 100 times more money. So We're not really competing with them in any sort of sense. Um, I'm not trying to compete with them in any sense. Half of Moloch's money is their money anyway. Um, not, not half, it's a, th a thousand of the ether is, is their money. But um, I think it's also helpful to have alternatives um, and especially helpful to have cross-organizational alternatives where the people who actually make up the decision uh, making for, for Moloch Moloch represents a new way of bringing uh, their knowledge together, right? So there's some people at consensus or just some, you know, uh, individuals within the community who are in Moloch but aren't in the EF that might have something to, cont 
contribute to that process. Uh, and within Moloch, they can all do this together. Interesting. Did this project come out of uh, sort of maybe a frustration that you saw in things not moving along as fast as you would, would like? Could you talk maybe about the motivation behind this? I believe there was a report that was written by yourself and another organization where uh, you guys pointed out some of those issues. I, I have gotten a grant from the EF before, and it was an arduous process. Um, so anything that allows that process to move faster is, is great in my eyes. I care a lot about Ethereum working, and Ethereum working um, d depends on our speed of execution. And so being able to accelerate generally how fast we can you know, execute on projects is a benefit for everybody in the ecosystem. So one of the sort of easiest things for Ethereum uh, community members to rally around is ETH 2.0, and that was the original sort of uh, mandate for Moloch was to try to accelerate ETH 2.0. And so we started doing that by um, putting out reports, uh, adding specs. And so, so the first report that we put out was called the state of ETH 2.0. And we just, you know, I realized one day that I didn't know really what was going on at all. Um, if somebody had asked me, how is ETH 2.0? What are they doing? My answer would have been, I don't know. I think they're still working on it. Right. And this was like before the, any spec freezes, before any of that. So we, uh, I, I organized interviews with all of the ETH 2.0 client team leads, as well as Danny Ryan, the lead researcher from the foundation. And we chatted for about an hour and we had a bunch of questions and we asked them where they're at, who, who's on their team, stuff like that. And we compiled it all into a report and tried to identify, you know, what are the, what are the most important challenges that this effort is going to be facing? Uh, in the upcoming months and years. And uh, we published that. It was primarily uh, authored by uh, Matt Slipper, who is the CTO of Keoken. They've done great work in the space. Uh, MetaMask, Uniswap, also SpankCard on the payment channels for, for SpankChain. And so they you know, ha have been helping part-time uh, since that report. Also in helping with a, sort of on a, we put them on like retainer. Uh, if a DAO can have somebody on retainer, I don't really know. Um, but we, we keep paying them every month. Um, and so they have, Matt has been spending some of his time uh, helping the ETH2 effort. Uh, they've, he, he wrote the first draft of the networking spec, which moved things forward. But then he realized that libp2p was a sort of critical dependency that hadn't really been thought through all the way. And so we actually yesterday just published a report about libp2p, how the client teams are using it, how they're able to interact with um, the, the P2B team in order to get the changes that they need included because it's sort of become this bottleneck for the, the networking layer. And we're trying to move past that. How exactly does a DAO put someone on retainer? That's a great question. I don't know. Uh, we just have an implicit agreement where I keep submitting proposals every month and people keep voting yes. And so they keep getting paid and, you know, uh, the world moves on. <laughs> All right, we'll come back to uh, to the the governance uh, and and the and, and sort of E two point and, and the state of ETH, of Ethereum more generally a little bit later on in the episode. But first, I'd like to spend some time on Moloch. Um, can you explain how it works at a basic level? Moloch has two contracts. Uh, there's the sort of um, governance contract, and then there's a guild bank. Um, and so when I 
want to join, uh, I have to get an existing member who has shares. Uh, if you have at least one share, you're a member. I have to get that member to submit a proposal. And so when you submit a proposal, you, there's a couple fields that are important. Uh, one is the amount of tribute that I'm willing to offer in Ether. And the other is the number of shares that I'm requesting. And the number of shares that I'm requesting will, if the proposal passes, be newly minted. And so the only difference between a grant proposal and a membership proposal in Moloch is you set the tribute to zero if it's a grant. If, it's, if I'm working for the, the DAO, then I am not putting up money. But if I'm joining as a member and then I'm coming in with capital, then I offer tribute and I, I put up money. And so uh, when in the grants case, if uh, after a seven day voting period where there is no quorum, um, the people just vote, uh, it could pass with one vote, um, has in the past actually. Um, so uh, after the seven day voting period, there's a seven day grace period um, where anybody who doesn't like how a vote went can leave. Uh, by calling the rage quit function. Uh, yes, that is a technical term. Uh, and then they withdraw with uh, their remaining ether, are not on the hook for, for the grant. But if, if at the end of the grace period, you know, the grant requested 10 shares, there are 100 shares total in the DAO, uh, then those 10 shares will be newly minted. And so whoever was the recipient of that grant will now have 10 over 110 shares. And this presents a way for uh, you know, grants to sort of automatically be proportionally paid by diluting all of the existing members. It's a sort of very simplified accounting system. And that kind of is what you would expect, right? We say, we're putting our money in this together, you get votes proportional to the money, and we all spend our money equally based on how much we've put in for every time we want to make a grant. Okay, so it's just maybe rephrase this. So as a, as there, there are two types of proposals that you can make to the organization. One is I have capital and I want to contribute capital in this sort of grant pool. And so therefore I make a proposal to, to uh, become a member of Moloch. And I believe there's sort of a, there's a, um, a referral system where you have to be referred by someone already yeah, within the it's DAO. Essentially an anti-spam mechanism because we don't want anybody to just be able to submit proposals. So you have to have an existing member submit a proposal for you to join. Okay. So to, to, to become a member, I have to propose to uh, the other shareholders that I want to become a member. So that's sort of a governance proposal that, get, that gets voted on. And I can do that by submitting a proposal with the, the amount of capital that I'm willing to allocate. Uh, or I can make uh, a proposal to re receive grant funding. So let's say I have a great idea and I want to build something like for Ethereum 2.0, for instance, well, I'll make a proposal, like write it out, I presume, post it on APFS and say, hey, like, who's willing to fund this? And well, those who are funded are those who vote yes. And if you don't want to fund it, you can rage quit uh, within the grace period and just receive your, your shares back. Correct. Or your yeah, Moloch is all about collective uh, sacrifice, right? It's uh, named after the Canaanite god of child sacrifice. If you want to join Moloch, you have to be willing to bleed with us. You can bleed with us by giving us your money, or you can do some work. That's how it works. Let's talk about security. 
You know, dApps are pretty unique because unlike other types of software, they can hold astronomical amounts of value. That's why getting systems audited, creating robust security processes, and fostering a culture of security in your organization is so important. And to do this, you should only trust experts with real security expertise. There are a lot of security firms in the blockchain space, but few have the experience and track record of Trail of Bits. And they've been in business since 2012, long before things like the DAO hack were even imaginable. Trail of Bits works with your team to audit every aspect of your project. And smart contract code is just the beginning. They'll help you implement best practices around things like DevOps, key storage, and user-facing applications. And once your software has been rigorously tested and reviewed by Trail of Bits, They'll provide the tools you need to make sure that your code remains safe over every new commit. They can even put a software security expert at your team's disposal who'll give you advice and answer your questions when you need them. It's like having your own security engineer on staff, but don't take my word for it. Go to their publications repo on GitHub to read their papers, presentations, and security reviews. It's no wonder teams like Parity, Status, NewCypher, and organizations like Facebook and DARPA trust Trail of Bits for their security audits. To learn more, go to trailofbits.com And if you decide to reach out, make sure you let them know you heard about them on Epicenter. We'd like to thank Trail of Bits for their support. How much of Moloch is influenced by other DAOs, like, for example, the DAO or DXDAO, or even, you know, I would say like Cosmos is some like sort of a DAO uh, since it has governance as well. How much how much of the work is influenced by previous projects? Yeah, it is heavily influenced by the DAO. Uh, the DAO kept me up at night because, well, the DAO for me was my first week at Consensus. Uh, so it was really fun watching everyone sort of initially not know what was going on and then lose their shit. And there's like a whole bunch of uncertainty. Are we going to soft fork? Oh, wait, no, that's a terrible idea. We could get spammed. Uh, are we going to hard fork? Okay, we're going to hard fork. Okay, like, what does this mean? Is it immutable? Who knows? Like, is this an existential crisis, right? Uh, 10% of all the ETH was was at stake there. So I didn't really want that to happen. Um, and so I, I spent a lot of time trying to make sure that that wouldn't happen for, for Moloch. But the simplicity of the design is heavily informed by the DAO. So Moloch is only 400 lines of code. Uh, it doesn't do anything except for what we've talked about. Um, it just you know allows you to pool money, vote, and leave. That's it. And it was designed to allow you to leave. Um, the excellent posts on called the moratorium, a call for a moratorium on the DAO by Eamon Gunsairer, uh, who is a, a noted professor at Cornell, uh, along, I think, with like Vlad and Dino. So they, they wrote this post actually before the DAO hack, just about all the game theoretical problems with the DAO. Um, and so even if it hadn't gotten hacked, it would have been broken in all sorts of ways. Uh, one of the the attack vectors was called the stalking attack. So if you wanted to leave the DAO, you actually had to create a child DAO. But the problem was anyone else in the DAO could join your child DAO. And so if you wanted to try and leave that child DAO, you'd have to make another child DAO and they could follow you forever. And that's exactly what happened post-hack when people tried to to leave. Um, So one of there were essentially two recommendations that they made at the bottom of, of that post. And the first one was uh, instant withdrawals, um, and the second one was post-vote grace periods. And I just took that as sort of my design outline, and then that's how we got to Moloch. The, the combination of the two is very powerful. If you have instant withdrawals without the post-vote grace period, you can leave 
but you can only ever leave before you know how a vote is going to go. But if you if you make it so that there's a grace period between when the vote on a proposal is final and when the execution of that vote, essentially the the printing of the shares and the, the diluting of, of all members, then you, you give all the members who don't like how that you know vote went a chance to leave before it is it is executed. And we have to add like you know a small amount of, of nuance around that because you know just trying to get this this sort of rage quit functionality in came with its own little edge cases. So one of those edge cases was, well, what if I vote yes on something and then I leave? Uh, and then everybody else is now on the hook for paying for that thing that I wanted, right? And so we actually, the only circumstance where you cannot leave is if you have voted yes on something that has yet to be processed. It is either in the voting or grace period. Um, so you have to be a little bit careful on not voting, you know, on on something that uh, you might want to leave after on, uh, you know, because of some other proposal. And the other thing is that uh, the if if I vote yes on a proposal uh, that is, for example, requesting one percent of the the guild's money, uh, then let's say ninety nine percent of the other members leave, and let's say it's even not related to that specific proposal, but another proposal, which just happened to be before it, right? Well, now I'm on the hook for 100 times more money than I thought I would trying to be giving to this because if there's like 100 shares, it's requesting one new share, 99% of the other people leave, I'm the only share now, I'm about to dilute myself 50% uh, because I'm going to create one share from one share and I'm going to, to pay for a lot more money that, than I thought I was going to. It's, it's unbounded uh, risk, right? And so we had to introduce a little mechanism just for that so that if more than two-thirds of the people leave uh, between when a proposal gets voted on and when it is processed at the end of the grace period, it just automatically fails. Um, and then, you know, you could try it again if you wanted. Okay, I see. So basically, say I have submitted a proposal and it was passed for, you know, a payout for a grant for building ETH 2.0 unit, whatever. So I'm issued shares. And uh, do I then, what, how do I actually retrieve the money? So I, I effectively have to rage quit in order to actually get the ether back out, right? The, for the shares that I've been issued for, for nothing for doing this work. Yes, that's correct. You would have to rage quit the shares. So you have the option. You, you can either keep the voting power if you don't immediately need the money, uh, or if you want the money, um, or you don't want to hold it in ether, then you have to, to exit. Um, so long as you keep at least one share, right? which is uh, we started out with just, just one share, one ETH. So you, you keep at least one share, uh, you will be you know, allowed to stay in the Discord channel, you'll be considered a member, you'll be allowed to submit uh, future proposals for either other members or more grants for yourself or others. And do you have any kind of mechanism that this payout is contingent on? So basically, typically, if I apply for a grant, there's some kind of um, payment schedule or um, there's some sort of milestone that I need to reach before payout. Is this the case for the Modoc DAO? No. Um, the idea is for, because the system's fast, we would just probably split it up on like a month-to-month -month basis and then just do separate proposals every month. You can do a sort of ad hoc Right, like if I'm if it's a larger proposal, you want to have somebody manage it. We could find somebody who's trusted within the DAO 
to act as a manager, give disbursements every month. And like, if they decide, you know, that we don't want to continue this, just give the rest of the money back to the DAO. We haven't done this yet. Uh, so far we haven't given out two, like, you know, there's only uh, about a, a little over a million dollars in the DAO right now. So I haven't given out, I think the largest one was like $20,000, uh, for a mixer UI on top of, um, the Argent Hopper, uh, smart contracts. And so, um, th these have all been in the range of like one to two months. Right. And I think the the reputational risk, uh, for anybody involved is, is also quite high. Um, if you want to go and, you know, fail the Moloch DAO, uh, you're, you're failing quite a lot of the most important people in the space. So do so at your own risk. Okay. I, I bear that in mind. Um, can I delegate my vote to someone else in the DAO? Uh, you, so you can't delegate your vote to another member in the sense that like, I can't pool votes. Uh, that would have been a really helpful feature from a, a UX perspective. Um, if we'd allowed that we built a mini permission system so that you can, uh, essentially have two addresses. You have the address that controls your ability to leave with the money, like they can call the rage quit function and then another address, which acts as your delegate key, but two members cannot give, you know, another member like, uh, to act as their delegates. Also, you have to have separate delegate keys. And this was annoying because when like, for example, the EF wanted to join, it would have been really easy if they could just join with a thousand ether and then say, okay, this address has a hundred shares. This address has a hundred shares. This address has a hundred shares. But instead, uh, they had to join 10 times, uh, from 10 separate accounts, which each controlled a hundred shares, uh, and then, um, delegate those addresses, uh, to the voting to, you know, the address of the, the member within the EF that wanted to vote. So, so those were 10 different proposals to have the EF join the down. Yeah. Our, our lack of foresight there caused, uh, an EF ops guy to spend an afternoon making 31 transactions, uh, <laughs> which, you know, um, it's not the end of the world, but uh, it, it, it would have been better to, to be able to avoid it. Um, there's, there's a lot of things now that are really obvious that could be improved uh, about the DAO. Um, and I think, it's, uh, I think it's great that we've been able to identify those um, because we sort of, you know, we tried to do our best, but ultimately our, our focus was shipping it. This was a side project of, you know, uh, a couple of us that had other full-time jobs is, you know, Arjun wrote the white paper, um, me and the connects team, we did a lot of solidity. Cassandra was helping design the, the game theory. Like had we spent too much time on this and tried to figure everything out up front, like it might not have shipped for another several months. Writing solidity is easy. Shipping solidity is not easy. Um, and so you end up designing the entire process just to optimize for how easy will this be to understand and get audited? Uh, and how confident am I that, you know, the tests are, are thorough. Um, and every single thing that you add on, especially if it interacts with any other thing, increases that complexity and makes it much harder to ship something. And the fact that we're having this conversation at all to me means that, you know, I've already won, uh, in terms of designing a thing that, worked well enough that it, it got attention and, and can now be iterated on. Um, and so 
you know, do, do you foresee then uh, a, a rage quit at any point soon, like where everybody rage quits and then there's like a new one that comes out and with all these added features? There's no upgrade mechanism, right? So people kept asking me, like, how do we upgrade? I'm like, here's how we upgrade. We all leave uh, and then we make another contract and, and I'll join that, right? And I, I do. I, I think that maybe in six months to a year, we'll do it. Um, it's, it's not pressing uh, because nobody has abused the system yet. Um, for example, it would be uh, you you have to spend 10 Ether to uh, as a deposit when you want to submit a proposal. And you get that back in a two-week period after the voting grace period are done. But if you really wanted to spam the, the, the DAO, it, you know, it would cost you, there can be, um, there, there's five new proposals per day. So the maximum throughput is 35 proposals per week. So you'd have to uh, put down... 10 for each, so you'd have to put down 700 Ether uh, to occupy the entire proposal throughput during the voting and grace period, 35 and 35. Uh, so 70 and then times 10 for deposits, so 700 Ether. And that's, that's not that expensive um, if you really think about it. And what would happen is somebody does this, some member defects, right? And then, well, it becomes a more pressing issue to figure out uh, how do we design a, a better anti-spam mechanism? Um, and the, the one that came to mind that wasn't obvious at the time was, well, you can non-linearly increase the cost of the, the proposal deposit cost uh, just on the person who is, is submitting. So, for example, um, if I'm the only one spamming, right, then my proposal deposit cost should go up with every other proposal that I've already submitted. So it starts at 10, then it goes to 11, 12, 13, 14, right? And then it becomes a lot more expensive for me and only me to submit proposals, but everybody else is fine, right? And that, like, these kinds of mechanisms would have been harder to explain at the beginning, at the outset, right? I have to go and say, hey, well, this is what we think. And they're like, why would you do it that way, right? And there's this whole other conversation which makes the getting people in the door, you know, a little less... Uh, socially scalable, but you know, if somebody spams it, then it's really easy conversation to have, which is like, "Hey, look, this happened. Here's how we're going to fix it." Moving on, right? Also, having the ability to forcibly remove members, um, not take their money, but uh, just kick them out, would also be nice. If you know, uh, we feel that a member is compromised and and spamming all the time, and we would prefer to instead of moving to a new contract, just kick them out. Yeah, those are all really great points. Yeah, totally agree that uh, it's uh, it's preferable to ship early and often, and uh, if necessary, iterate over um, what what you're offering. Maybe maybe let's talk a little bit of the um, funding and the influence of the DAO. So, um, how many people are currently members, or how many entities are members of the DAO? I'm looking at the website. It says 65. Um, it's a little hard to tell who's who. So, 10 of those are consensus people. 10 of those are ethereal Ethereum Foundation people. Um, about, you know, one of those is Vitalik with a thousand ETH, one of those is Joe. Um, the, the original uh, 22 co-founders, uh, they're largely individuals. Um, uh, Spankchain joined with uh, five people, each with 100 Ether as well. Um, so, so probably, yeah, around 60 members uh, total. So Vitalik, the Ethereum Foundation, Consensus, and Joe... Um, have um, can vote for a thousand shares each, right? So they they put in a thousand ethers. Consensus and the EF votes are split between uh, ten people. So there's ten people who each have a hundred shares. 
th that is like two thirds of the total pool, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do 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 you think there's a problem with um, this voting power distribution? So the great thing about how this works is that if it was ever perceived as a problem, everyone else could leave. Uh, so even if they're sitting there, uh, you know, uh, the, the way the game theory of, of the DAO works out is you don't want to vote in ways that uh, incentivize other people to quit because um, then you're just back to funding things by yourself, right? Um, so, you know, this is Joe and Vitalik to date have not voted at all. Uh, some people within consensus in the EF have voted. So, so let's say I felt like being exploiting the, the votes that, that Spank Chain has, right? We have, uh, I, I have personally 100 votes, and then I have, uh, Spank Chain has 500 votes. So I see this Ethereum 2.0 Lodestar uh, proposal here it has 500 yes votes right now, right? So I could go and swing that whole thing inside that, you know what, this ETH 2.0 team does not deserve uh, a grant for Moloch. Um, now, do I want to do that, right? And so if I did that, I might, you know, piss off those 510 shareholders worth of, of capital and, and maybe they no longer are interested in, in participating. Um, and, and that would be sort of self-destructive, right? And so, so maybe I don't want to do that at all. Um, on the other hand, there is uh, another series of votes for another Just DAO. Because also, they will also lose their funds if you were to vote no on this, right? Well, the, they, they wouldn't lose any funds. It's just that um, the, the team that was trying to get the grant wouldn't get the grant. Right, okay. Right? There's no penalty for proposals that don't get passed? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, there's, there's no penalty. You, you get the deposit back uh, at the end of the two weeks. You get the 10 Ether back. So that's why you know if you, the cost of, of spamming the thing is 700 ETH that you lock up for two weeks, essentially. And so th there's another series of votes on Yangdao. Right, which is much smaller. It's it's uh, ten, ten times less money than what uh, the Lodestar two team is, is asking for. Uh, it's thirty five hundred instead of like thirty thousand, um, and it's something that I think is really important. But so far, many people have voted against, and it's kind of contentious. Um, so like the the votes are split here. Um, there, there's four different proposals, uh, so we did it in in four parts, um, and so one is like. Uh, it's funny because some of them are passing. One is like 625 to 600. Another one's 425 to 600. Another one's 525 to 500. Um, but I, you know, I could also make all of these pass. And so maybe what I'll do is I'll make all those pass, and then I just won't interrupt uh, the other vote. And that's a sort of compromise, right? It's it's not even a compromise I had to talk to anybody about. It's a sort of compromise based on like the implicit game theory of the situation, which is that. The other members don't want me to leave, uh, so they might not uh, vote. And you know, if if we all have our own little like pet project that we want to uh, get funded through this, uh, it, it it could happen through a series of compromises. Now, I think that Yang Dao is is critically important, and having a a grant from Moloch would signal boost and and uh, you know add some legitimacy to the project. Um, I think it's an entire category of, of new use case. Uh, where we are collectively funding uh, marketing operations for a U.S. presidential candidate. I think that could attract a lot of attention. I think it could inspire other clones for other U.S. presidential candidates. Um, and I, I think like that's the kind of level that we as a community want to be operating, right? It's sort of uh, not enough to always be looking inside and 
and trying to think about, you know, um, research and tools and, and scalability if nobody is using it. Uh, and so I think the point is to bring Ethereum to these other communities. And if we're failing to do that, then we're definitely not getting anywhere. Let's talk about the Yang Dao in a second, because this is actually truly fascinating. But is it, is it fair to summarize your entire stance as, as saying the Moloch Dao works because we have an off-chain reputation system within the Ethereum community and people know who I am and I know who the other people are and I know what, what, what that our interests in um, getting Ethereum 2.0 off the ground are aligned. Yeah, uh, that, that's like pretty accurate. You know, it is a permission system after all, right? You have to know who, who the other uh, people are in order to get in. Uh, there have been some people who have, I have actually proposed that, that they join and I, there's, there's a couple of people who I don't even know who they are um, and I proposed them anyway. And the reason is they were able to prove to me that they have a Genesis, you know, wallet. Uh, and I was like, you know what? Fine. Uh, that's good enough. <laughs> so, so basically, <laughs> um, the, the system in and of itself is not something that's game theoretically locked in. So basically, you actually have to rely on outside things. So for instance, I mean, what, what some other DAO projects have tried to do is um, to build the, this fail-safe system. So for instance... Um, what what can in principle happen with the Moloch DAO is you can actually um, turn a vote at the very last block, right? So basically, you could actually submit your your 600 uh, votes um, at, at the very last block of the vote star voting period, and you could still turn it. Um, and then no one else would actually have the chance to actually turn it back because no one would have known that. Uh, so ba basically, um, I mean, what some some projects actually actually have is For instance, this quiet ending period where um, if, if the vote flips, then, you know, the, the voting period gets extended uh, by a certain amount of hours or days. Um, and in itself, it's not a system that works in a vacuum. Yeah, I think that the vote flipping, the quiet period or, you know, whatever that uh, is, is a good uh, feature. Um, I would have preferred it to be in this as well. Um, I think that, so I, I talked to Martin Koppelman about, about Dowstack a, a couple times, um, how they have, they've designed it. And we basically came to the conclusion that they kind of wish they had a grace period. And I kind of wish I had the, the vote flipping thing. Um, because right now people are incentivized in Moloch to vote at the very end, right? There's, there's like a day left on these proposals. Uh, maybe, you know, I'm just going to wait until the last, like a couple hours and then I'll start voting because then that gives less of a time for everybody else to organize around it. Like if, if I flip the vote and then it would keep going for a little bit longer and give other people a heads up at the same time. Um, the, the fact that there's this grace period means that I can't bully anybody into staying and paying for anything that they don't want, which is also really helpful. Even if, uh, you know, the, the vote flips, because if you didn't have that grace period, you would have to decide whether or not to leave based on, uh, you know, like, like you could leave because you think a vote is going to pass and then it could get flipped, right, on the last block. And so that, that's sort of also kind of annoying, right? Um, now, the point is, is like, I'm not, I'm not going to be like as game theoretically exploitative as I can be because uh, that would, in, you know, potentially backfire in incentivizing the other members to quit Right. And like, if I do that, then I'm back to funding everything just from Spank Chain itself, which is where I started. 
So I don't want to do that. That makes sense. And I think it's it's a it's a great approach in that it actually did. I mean, I think this 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 can't be stressed enough. This is actually a project that did get traction and that attracted a lot of uh, important community members to contribute their own money and with a common um, goal of uh, furthering uh, the course of Ethereum 2.0. So, um, so looking at the the proposals, so there's there's 85 uh, proposals in total and about 65 members, I think. So I guess a lot of those proposals are proposals to add new members. And then of the rest, quite a few of the ones that are pending at the moment or in the voting period are for this Yangdao. We'll talk about the Yangdao in a second, but can you talk about sort of, aside from the Yangdao proposals, uh, which, uh, how many of the proposals are actually about advancing ETH 2.0? And I guess my question is, like, has anything come out of this that's actually usable and that is being used towards uh, building ETH 2.0? Yeah, so there's the, the first one was the state of ETH 2.0 report. Then we were funding Matt Slipper, just part-time contributing. He did the first draft of the networking spec. We brought um, Anton Tulme, who's now the CTO of WhiteBlock, on to build an ETH 2.0 test runner that many of the clients um, we're using and, and can integrate into their workflows. Um, we were actually, yeah, and so th then we, we just published the, the P2P report and uh, now we're sort of in the RFP process for doing a, a, a validator client that can plug into any underlying node um, and uh, have a GUI that shows, you know, performance, um, earnings, uh, and, and stuff like that uh, for a ETH2 uh, validator client. Um, that is, you know, trying to uh, calculate their earnings um, as they go. I, I would guess that, like around sixty or seventy percent of the the grants actually have gone to uh, ETH two stuff. This is skewed slightly by um, the a twenty thousand dollar recent grant for BlockX to build a web UI for the mixer because there's a, a mobile app that had a mixer integrated, and so we were like, well, we can increase the anonymity set and bring this to more users if we. Uh, build a web UI as well that interfaces with the same contracts. So uh, the the mandate is evolving, right? Um, and, and we always knew it would uh, in the sense that like, we knew that you, you get a bunch of these people together and we're going to have ideas of other potential things that we might want to fund uh, above and beyond just, you know, ETH 2.0. And some of those things have also not gotten funded. Uh, you know, some of those proposals have failed. There was a ETH 2.0 block explorer, I think it was uh, block squid and and that was uh, rejected um, and some of the membership proposals failed um, I tried to reach out and personally recruit uh, somebody from the ethereum community I'd never met because I liked his blog post his name was Peter Pan and uh, the other members felt that he didn't uh, shouldn't be let in um, he uh, his mistake was that he only, he didn't have very much money. Uh, and at the time, the members were trying to limit people who would join with uh, less than 100 shares because they thought it would increase the, the coordination uh, overhead, which you know seemed like a valid uh, concern at the time. But then uh, they rejected him. And, uh, well, that's how the Meta Cartel DAO was actually born. Uh, so I, I called him up and I said, hey, I was with Cassandra. I was like, hey, let's, uh, let's make another DAO. Uh, you know, screw it. Let's do it again. Um, and he's like two steps ahead of you. I've actually already gotten all the Meta Cartel people. Like, uh, we're all excited about building a UX-focused DAO uh, for building tools, um, 
for, for the application layer because the meta cartel started with meta transactions, which is a way to use relayers and um, forward transactions so you don't have to pay for the gas. You can even abstract the the you know unit of account that you pay for your gas. You can pay for it in WEATH and DAI and, and so forth. Um, and you just like sign a transaction and use this little smart contract wallet and da da da. Right? That's all great. And and then it's it's evolving into funding both uh, other tools of that kind and uh, to make DAP development easier and some DAPs themselves. And now the Meta Cartel I think has uh, a couple, couple hundred ether, um, maybe like uh, between one hundred and two hundred thousand um, dollars, and that's uh, like seven hundred fifty or something. Something yeah. So they are trying to decide what what their first grants should be. Um, and so this shows uh, a, a way that this can scale, and it's using the exact same contracts. When, I, when we say when we call it a fork of Moloch, it's really just a redeploy, um, and uh, yeah, it has a different set of members who are are pooling their funds and advancing the cause that they are, you know, passionate about. Um, and so, what, one of the proposals for YangDAO is actually to, uh, I've had uh, Peter Pan, he's uh, a surprisingly good DAO coordinator. Um, to help PM a lot of the Yangdao stuff. Uh, and I thought that maybe Mala could reward him for that. And so now we'd have like DAOs spawning other DAOs. So let, let, let's spend a little bit of time on this Yangdao idea. So what is the Yangdao and why is it becoming a proposal within Mala? Why wouldn't they just spin it off as, as their own thing? And um, yeah, as, as a fork of the Mala. Yeah. Um, well, it, I mean, it's also the same contracts, right? So Meta Cartel, Moloch, Yangdao. There's even, uh, you know, earlier stages, there's a Lobby DAO now, uh, but we'll come back to that. Um, so so it, it could have, you know, I, I could have funded out of pocket. Um, it wouldn't have been as interesting, I think. Um, I think it it's, you know, people are watching Moloch now, right? It has has some attention. It's it's not quite, you know, the EF, um, but when, when Moloch gives gives a grant it's um you know access access signal within the community also i'm sort of using moloch to just accumulate talented people uh that i want to work with and that i want to be able to have access to if we have stuff that needs to get done and so the people who are you know proposed to be getting money for yangdao are one of the designers who made a site which is uh you know the art um for, for the, the yangdao.org site. So you can, if you want to join the Yangdao, uh, you can pre-register. It's possible we actually have to give some background at this point. So for Did everyone I who's not that? based in the US, so uh, Andrew Yang is one of the Democratic presidential candidates um, for the next election. His main talking point is um, the unconditional basic income, uh, as far as uh, I know. He's been gaining a lot of traction. And um, I think one more thing we should say about U.S. campaign financing is that there are very strict laws about this, right? So basically, you can only contribute um, a certain amount uh, towards um, any any given candidate, um, and you also have have to be a resident or a national of the U.S. I'm not quite sure. Maybe you can talk about this. I mean, if the uh, contributions are going to the candidate, but if the contributions are going to marketing around the candidate that the candidate is not uh, explicitly not coordinating with. Um, which is the sort of rules that govern super PACs, then uh, you have, I think, a little bit more leeway. I didn't actually expect uh, the Moloch DAO code to be used in this way. Um, I was just talking to somebody who was close to the campaign, and they were like, yeah, we're raising money. I was like, how does that work? I was like, you know, they, they explain. And I, I was like, well, you know, we built this interesting grants uh, system. 
that you might be interested in to, to use it. And it, it turns out that it maps really well onto that use case because normally when you donate money to a, a politician's campaign or like a super PAC rate, you just give them the money and then you hope that they do, uh, they, they spend it well, right? In this case, you actually get the option to not only vote on it, but also leave with your money if you don't like how they're spending it. So uh, it has some advantages in that regard. Yeah, so so with the Yangdao, one of the other things that we're we're building is James Young, who was one of the he was a, a VP engineering at Spank Chain for a while, moved on. Um, uh, he he's been building the abridged wallet, and so we it's like a really nice bridge between Web two and Web three, where you can uh, sort of counterfactually instantiate this, you know, basically without having to. Uh, to send any transactions until you have money in this contract, and then the contract gets deployed. It's kind of how the Gnosis safe works. Um, you you get this uh, wallet, and this wallet can have any number of your keys plug into it. Um, so it's not like an M of N multisig, but it's also a um, you know it's much safer if you already have one or two wallets to just plug your existing wallets into a contract and authorize them as spenders of of the money or as people who can execute transactions through that. Then uh, you know needing to make a new wallet and then write down a seed phrase and da da da, um, and and so we're uh, the Yangdao when it launches in like about a week it'll be the first uh, app that uses that, um, and so we're paying for the the developers there and the designers there and and for the the coordinators uh, who are sort of managing. And this is very well something that could hit the mainstream media if it becomes successful, right? So I mean people. People will talk about this. So, is your ambition in promoting this um, to a large part a PR exercise, or is it still truly the idealism that fuels it? PR for idealism is is never bad, right? Like if you if you <laughs> have ideals and they get more attention, that's that's a benefit. Um, I, th I mean, it, it, it's because we have maybe for the first time uh, a presidential uh, Democratic candidate that is crypto friendly. Right, and so if we can um, help support them with our crypto, then maybe we'll, you know, change the narrative. Uh, Tr Trump has already started tweeting about Bitcoin. And I expect uh, crypto to be at least, if not, you know, the topic, a topic uh, during this, uh, you know, nomination process. And I think that um, being able to have our voice in this process would be really important. And if uh, that blows up, then Great. Uh, people will look at Ethereum and say, uh, "Hey, like this can actually be used for stuff that maybe isn't even around finance, right? Um, this is just purely a social coordination mechanism." And if that, you know, brings more activity onto the Ethereum network, then I think that's a win. I I think that would be super interesting to see, and I'm I'm personally rooting for the Yangdao. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting like design, and I think your approach to building it has been. I see it as kind of like a, a lean product approach where, you know, you just build the features that you need and and then, you know, if if you need to implement new features and then everybody just exit and there's like a new a new DAO. And uh, I think like that's a, a really good way to to try to bootstrap this thing. And like the, the, the whole way that you've bootstrapped it is, is, is very interesting. It's a it's a new type of development practice. It's called meme driven development, MDD. <laughs> if the meme is good enough, we'll do it. That's the point. Right. right. <laughs> so moving now to um, the sort of future of the ecosystem and so your your views on the ecosystem, we've talked about this a little bit, but 
Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, where you see the future of Ethereum going. And if you could, you know, share your thoughts on, you know, the foundation uh, more generally. Yeah, uh, I think Ethereum's going to do well. I mean, I think ETH 2.0 will, will ship. Um, there's a lot of talented people working on it. It's a, it's a hard problem, but I think they've solved a lot of the, the research problems and have moved on to engineering. Um, I think I think it's going to be a heroic effort that's required because we have to like build all the tools again uh, to adapt to this new sharded future. I, I think the, the the community will will get there. Um, it's like one of those things where you know you're anxious about it, but at the same time you're you're pretty sure you it's like you're going to win. You know, um, the in, in terms of like EF, um, I'm really impressed. They've uh, stepped up a lot, um, increased their transparency. They ship the new website. You know, people have opinions about it. I kind of like it, to be honest. Um, but uh, they have committed to spending you know thirty million dollars over the next year. Um, as an organization, they they seem more willing to uh, you know let go people if if needed, which I think is healthy. Um, so we had a, a case of that, and and also they're by. by Participating in stuff like Moloch, they are decentralizing themselves, right? So they, they are planning to be obsolete at some point, right? They don't want to go obsolete too soon because the ecosystem needs their, their support. Um, but they also don't want to go obsolete too late where they stick around for you know longer than they're needed. Um, and so they're, they're playing a delicate balance game. Uh, and they're also trying to support um, other, you know, um, decision makers and, and, and community members who, who can uh, potentially complement them in, in coordinating resource allocation, which I think is, is pretty cool. So one question that I, I often ask people who are uh, deep in the Ethereum ecosystem and is with regards to sort of the, the roadmap and how long it's expected to take to, to deploy Ethereum 2.0. So, you know, firstly, like how long do you think this will take? Like when do you think that Ethereum 2.0 will ship, uh, if you have any indication there or any ideas. And and secondly, do, do you think that you know introduction of other blockchain uh, systems that you know have a lot of the features that Ethereum 2.0 are is uh, wanting to have, like you know things like Cosmos and Polkadot, which is coming soon. Um, do you think that the fact that these chains are ready or near ready? can harm Ethereum ecosystem and take away some of the talent and mindshare and just like generally like the, uh, the projects that we're, that are looking to build on blockchain systems. Yeah, I think they'll, uh, develop communities. I don't think, uh, competition is necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think it, you know, inspires you to, uh, push yourself to new heights. Um, it, going back to your, to your roadmap question for a sec though, uh, Q1 20, uh, 20 is like the uh, planned, you know, beacon chain release date. So phase zero of sharding, which is just the backbone. Um, the the data layer should be made available by the end of 2020. Um, so maybe Q4 or, or Q1 the next year. And then I think the interoperability between shards and adding smart contracting to the shards will come, you know, something like a year after that. Um, it could be faster. Um, depending on uh, how well teams transition between uh, implementing a spec and like the sort of other 
um, engineering challenges that go into building a client. Um, additional coordination uh, on the engineering side, I think, would probably be welcome because the most of the coordination that's going on is happening at the research level. Like, here is the spec. Build the spec. Did you build the spec? Yes. Okay, good. Okay. What about all the rest of the work that goes into building client? That is not just this. Well, well no, you know, um, the teams are sort of on their own to manage that part. And and I think that maybe there's there's room uh, to do better there. Um, Cosmos and Polkadot are you know they are not in and of themselves smart contract platforms, right? Um, but I can uh, connect them to other uh, chains, base chains, right? And so they're actually glorified layer twos uh, in in my mind, right? Because they don't really exist without layer ones. Um, so w will they get traction? You know. Probably will it, you know, pe people might launch experiments on them in the meantime. Um, but ultimately, like, I have a choice when, you know, I'm building something for my users. And it's like, um, you know, I can plug into this one ecosystem where I have all these other developers that built out a bunch of stuff that I didn't even realize I needed yet. Um, or, you know, I can um, be a pioneer, but that's going to be like Ethereum five years ago, right? Uh, not a whole lot of the, the tooling is built. They haven't really figured out what, what it's supposed to be used for, um, stuff like that. And so I expect maybe it'll drain some of the value from Ethereum uh, in the short term over the next two years while there's uncertainty around the Ethereum roadmap execution. But I think at the end of that, right, when it's... Uh, when there's no longer uncertainty about the Ethereum roadmap execution, all of that value and more is going to come back to Ethereum and Ethereum will continue to dominate. That's my bet. Um, I you know, could be wrong. Uh, there's a lot of people who have, you know, you know I'm, I'm sort of incentivized to, to play this way, but like I'm also, you know, there's a thing where like your holdings reflect your beliefs and then your beliefs reflect your holding in a sort of cyclical uh, way right, so I'm sure that's at, that's at play here too. And there's lots of Cosmos and Polkadot bag holders, with, which would tell me otherwise, and they'd say, "Oh, but you need governance. Like, how are you going to get anything done if you don't have a, a governance structure?" And it's like, well, you know what? I I don't actually really like that uh, a governance structure can make protocol updates or determine, for example, in Polkadot, like who gets to lease a parachain. Because I also run a adult-oriented company, and historically. Uh, you know, adult companies have had issues with banking. Uh, with they are on the other side of consensus, if you will. Like that means that if I'm operating a parachain or on a parachain, then I always have to wonder, like, will the dot holders decide that you know they no longer want my community on their chain? Which they could do because you know that they're about to bring in some banking partners. They're really excited about it. And then they decide, you know, do we really need these, this, you know, the sex worker community? And every single time that question has been asked in that way, the answer is no. So uh, Ethereum gives me a lot of benefits because for people to remove something like Spankchain, you'd literally have to get everybody to update their full nodes at the same time uh, and do it via hard fork. And and like people, I think, really underestimate the the power of that kind of decentralization. Because um, like the reason I'm building on Ethereum, not like the Twitter API, is so that I can't get shut down, right? If you can shut me down via some kind of coin vote, like 
I'm not as interested in building on your chain, you know? And, and I think that the most value in the world is, uh, you know, held in like central banking reserves. Uh, and so when they decide who wants to, uh, like what they want to build on, uh, they will want to build on something neutral. And so I don't see, uh, you know, um, platforms that have capturable governance being uh, useful for them to build, for example, settlement layers between central banks on, which is like sort of the ultimate bull, you know, case for any sort of crypto settlement layer to begin with. Perfect. Thank you, Amin. I think those were uh, fantastic closing words. <laughs> Thank, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, we're excited to see uh, what the future of Moloch DAO brings. Great. Thanks for having me. I had fun. And where can people uh, learn more about Moloch and perhaps even, you know, how, how do people become a member of like someone wants to make a proposal to become a member, for example? Um, yeah. So to make a Moloch DAO proposal to, to join, uh, you can't, right? You have, to, you have to find somebody who's in. You can DM me. I'm Amin Sol on Twitter. Um, We're about to set up a, a forum for MolochDAO so that you can you can post a, a sort of like, hey, I'd like to join. Here's me. Um, post there, uh, and then YangDAO is uh, I think YangDAO.org. You can pre-register for the launch. Um, there's also MetaCartelDAO. Check it out if you're into DApps and UX. Um, and, and you know, as as always, there is SpankChain.com and SpankLive, which are are uh, you know adult-friendly platforms. Okay, thanks for joining us. I mean. Yep. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.